This is Dr. Laura Gouge, and you are listening to The Practice Sessions, the podcast where we combine practical advice with powerful inspiration to support you in creating the practice of your dreams. Hey everyone, I'm super excited to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Kirsten Wright. Dr. Wright is a naturopathic doctor who graduated in 2014. We were actually classmates together, and she's joining us today to talk about everything research. Dr. Wright has a Master's of Science in Integrative Medicine Research from NUNM, and she's currently doing a postdoctoral fellow at Oregon Health and Science University studying botanical medicine and cognitive decline. This is a great conversation about the current state of affairs in naturopathic medicine and research, advice for anyone who's curious about actually doing research, and great ways that anyone can get more involved in evidence-based medicine. I hope you enjoy the episode today. Hey, Kirsten. Thanks for being uh, willing to do this interview today. You're more than welcome. Yeah. So the first question we like to ask everyone is, can you tell us a little bit just about your work or your practice right now? Yeah. So I am a postdoctoral scholar or fellow at Oregon Health and Science University here in Portland, Oregon. And I mostly am doing what's called translational research studies, which is the studies that happen between a clinical trial and preclinical studies, which happen for mouse models or cells or um, things that happen at a bench site. So I am working on botanical research in translational studies and more or less looking at the bioavailability of an herbal product that I have developed for Alzheimer's disease, or at least dementia. Uh, And we have been working for over a decade on getting all of the preclinical data and now uh, transitioning it into a clinical trial. So I'm doing training in federal regulations. I'm doing training in grant writing and conducting clinical trials and hoping to move forward with more independent research as we as the time progresses. Super cool. It sounds like a lot of responsibility and individual tasks. And so I'm kind of wondering what an average day looks like for you. Yeah, of course. So there is no average day in research. <laughs> I'm going to give you that uh, up front. Uh, I, I start my day, uh, I would say, on a weekly basis because I'm involved in a different, a lot of different things. I'm a clinician on an active clinical trial right now, and that clinical trial is in Alzheimer's disease. And those people, we actually visit them at their home. So about once or twice twice a week, I will go to a participant's home and do um, physical exams and collect uh, memory information and check in on them. They're in a trial where we look at them every year. Other parts of the week, uh, actively currently right now, I'm doing a lot of grant writing. I mean, that is just a part of the transition phase between being a fellow and being an independent researcher. Uh, So I'm actively trying to submit some grants. I have a couple of manuscripts that I'm also writing. I tend to have a research student in my lab at times, so I supervise research students. And then uh, I'm doing laboratory experiments myself. So it's a balance. So I would say, you know, one day a week I'm out seeing patient or uh, research participants in their home. One day a week, I'm supervising my student. Either they're there one or twice, once or twice a week. They're there for ten hours, so it's split over many days because they're an undergraduate student. And then I'm meet. There's a lot of meetings and research, so I would say on average I have one or two meetings a week. And then the rest of the time, I'm either um, writing on a grant or writing on a manuscript or doing an experiment in the lab. Um, and unfortunately, there is no average week, so it fluctuates depending on what deadlines are coming up. The experimental cycle future, hopefully soon here, uh, we will be starting our clinical trial and an average week for that uh, would be three days a week 
research participant engagement, and then the other two days a week analysis of the samples from those um, participants, and then actual uh, manuscript writing after that. Probably can't tell us too much about the clinical trial yet. I can't, uh, other than the one that I'm doing in participants' homes, we're characterizing them over long time, which is why we visit them frequently. We're trying to get away from memory. The standard thing in, in Alzheimer's disease is to do standardized questionnaires, but that doesn't really reflect every day. And so we're trying to get away from that. Uh, For my clinical trial, I study a botanical from Ayurvedic medicine. And I can't tell you too much about how it's been formulated, unfortunately, but I can tell you that the clinical trial is going to be delivering the botanical to these people, making sure that it gets into the body, because that's the first step in uh, herbal medicine research with humans. Is it safe and does it get absorbed? We know this very well with turmeric and its lack of getting absorbed. So it does get absorbed. Is it safe? And then we're going to look at changes consistent with um, changes in the brain for Alzheimer's. So I'm curious, I know after you finished school, you did a two-year residency. And I'm curious about that transition from doing residency, deciding to um, pursue research full-time. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that like decision? Yes, of course. So I'm going to step two steps before that. So before I came to naturopathic medical school, I was in a PhD program overseas, mm-hmm. um, studying biomolecular chemistry in plants. Um, And that program gave me a lot of skill set to eventually my end goal uh, when I went through all of the naturopathic program was to have some involvement in research to incorporate my research training and boost botanical medicine understanding as well as acceptability. So I, I intended to do that with the end goal of applying it to healthcare anyway. Then I realized I didn't have any clinical training, so I went and pursued the naturopathic medical program at NUNM, but I also did the Masters of Integrated Medicine Research program to get more skills in grant writing and clinical trial administration. Uh, I did both of those programs, and then I graduated and did a two-year residency in naturopathic primary care to boost my clinical experience. I did it in interventional radiology to help me with diagnostics. And then both of them were independent private practices in the Portland area, which gave me a lot of information about how to run a business, what's involved in private practice, what what are all the steps with insurance credentialing, what does it look like to, um, you know, be someone's primary care provider. And I also was involved in research throughout that entire interval as well, either in writing case studies about patients that have come through these clinics um, because we're using a lot of uh, new interventions that may or may not have been published on before. And case studies are a very important way to start the publication cycle to provide evidence for future studies. So I highly encourage students and or practitioners to write case studies. They're really helpful and they help spread treatment ideas across the the profession, which is very important. Then I also was involved in a clinical trial that was being run through NUNM. So I was a clinical site. So I was seeing participants, taking blood samples um, and giving them evidence and then doing private practice on top of that. So I was approached when I was a resident by my mentor at Oregon Health and Science University regarding my interest in botanical medicine and Alzheimer's disease research to fill this fellowship program. In essence, when I was a student at NUNM, I was planning to apply for this similar type of fellowship, but there weren't any availabilities at the time that I was leaving school. And I realized that I didn't have as much clinical background as I was liking. So that is why I pursued a residency. The benefit of what I have right now is my mentor was also my master's mentor at NUNM. So I had a relationship with her before in the sense that she was my mentor on my master's thesis. 
she already knew I had botanical medicine research and a lot of chemistry background, which is important for what I'm doing right now. So I'm bridging the gap between a PhD and a clinician, and that's where I ideally fit. And then, uh, and then she had a position come available at the time that residency was completing, and so I transitioned to, to research full-time. As a fellow, we don't have time to see patients on top of research. It's just very time-consuming. So I, uh, I, I also pursued a master's of clinical research during my fellowship up at OHSU. That's part of the, the fellowship training. And so there just wasn't enough hours to do clinical practice. So I pursued research full-time, but hoped to get back to clinical practice moving forward and research at the same time. So thinking about clinical practice and the experience that you do have, I know personally how challenging it can be to be in this world where we have evidence for some elements of our medicine, but we don't have research evidence for every element of our medicine. So I'm really curious about how you incorporated that into your clinical practice and how you think of it moving forward as far as framing your practice. So uh, just for clarification, so you wanted to know how I use evidence-based medicine as a practitioner? Yeah, well, I guess I mean just, I think that some of us who come from this research background tend to stick to evidence-based stuff, and I'm wondering if you're one of those people or if you use the whole scope or kind of where you fall as far as evidence-based practice goes. Yeah, so I, I would argue that I fall more on the evidence-based scope than the entire scope of naturopathic mm-hmm. medicine, One, because our scope is so broad, to use all of them is really challenging. And two, I had a patient population that was pretty adamant about evidence-based medicine. They wanted to understand why they were doing what they were doing, and I felt using evidence-based medicine was really important for motivating patients and the dosere part of our medicine to help them understand and uh, encourage compliance. So if someone didn't understand what they were doing or why they were doing it, I saw that their compliance would fall through. Uh, And that, you know, that falls on on me as a, as a practitioner to make sure and explain to them why they're doing things. But I also didn't shy away from saying there are times where there is not evidence for what we are doing. And physiologically, it makes sense in this way. This is how your body works. And this is how we understand this botanical works. And so this is the, the association. But I don't have a clinical trial to show you. Also, from my background, I know a lot of clinical trials at least in the complementary medicine world, are very underpowered. And so we have a lot of studies, and underpowered means not enough people are in the study to make a conclusion, and often the conclusion becomes negative because there's not enough people. Or the study wasn't designed in a way that is consistent with clinical practice in the modern day, so or historically even. I wanted to highlight for people that that is the case sometimes, and so evidence might be there, but the evidence is confusing. And this happens when you look at a lot of research in natural products. Uh, There's a lot of controversy as to the answers to how things work, and that can come down to study design, lack of money, and or just maybe it doesn't work. So uh, I encouraged, I would discuss with people how things work physiologically, and then we would move forward with, they would end up making the ultimate decision based on is it evidence-based or not and for them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So for people who don't have a background in research, do you have any advice for incorporating evidence-based medicine into practice? Yes. So ultimately, for our, our medicine, as you know, doesn't have a lot of evidence behind a few different modalities. And uh, it's important to kind of take that into consideration. One of the things I would say is familiarity with understanding evidence is going to be important across all parameters, no matter if you do research or not. That is a very big ask, and I appreciate that. But part of it is um, understanding how to read research. And there are a lot of courses available online and or in person that can help teach you how research is constructed so that you can 
be able to read a research article and take some information from it. And if you're struggling with it, I would say reach out to your collaborators or colleagues that are research savvy and kind of come down to an answer. And I appreciate that clinical practice is extremely busy. You have a lot of demands and these are not just patient interaction demands. There are a lot of demands on the back end with paperwork and staff management and all the other things that come along. So spending your additional time reading evidence is not exactly what everybody wants to do. They definitely want to also have a nice work-life balance for sure. But in the safety aspect of patients, if they're asking for evidence, then it is our onus to read it. And to be able to read it, we need to have some skill set. And that comes down to learning how articles are constructed. If you're in an environment where research is available, whether a big academic institution through Grand Rounds or continuing education, I would encourage participation in some of those journal clubs to listen and hear how researchers look at evidence um, to gain skill set to be able to do so independently. Yeah, I think that's such good advice. I'm so curious because I feel like I hear different criticisms um, of how we do research in naturopathic medicine. There's challenges like how do you have a placebo when there's like a dietary intervention, things like that. You know, there's there's a lot of challenges. Like even with some of our nutraceuticals, it's like, okay, well, they studied this one particular subset of vitamin E. So like, can we apply this to all vitamin E? Like there's different controversies and different studies. So I'm curious just like what you see going forward, like how do we build this body of evidence for a lot of the things that we know clinically are effective? Right. So the big challenge with the, the naturopathic research design is that we do multimodal interventions. We do, which means it works on a lot of things at once and or there's a lot of parts to it. And the this is particularly evident in botanical medicine, which is where I kind of live. There is a lot of push in the world to look at very minute amounts of the botanical and how it works. And that is because Science is very hard, at, uh, very challenged at explaining very complex things. So we give a person a tincture, or we give a person a decoction, or we give them the raw herb. Okay, that's fantastic, and we see a lot of benefit from that. But from a scientific perspective, there are so many things in there. How do we understand how it works? This is the paradigm that I live in all the time. So I submit my grants, and I ask them, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to study this decoction of this herb. And they ask me why I'm not just giving the bioactive compounds independently, which would be equivalent to a pharmaceutical trial, right? So the example would be give them willow extract or give them the actual salicin, which is the aspirin, right? So, okay, that, that for to understand exactly how it works, there is argument for using just the active compound that we know is active. But there's this thing that happens in botanical medicine called synergy, where the different parts inside the plant work as a team. And they may or may not make other active compounds or come together and make something totally new, and that's why we have the outcome. And this explains a lot of why botanical medicine trials, where we don't stay with ethnobotanical prescribing or historical prescribing, we don't see any benefit because we only look at one active, and that active may not work with the rest. This is very evident in Chinese medicine as well, where... They're formulas, right? And they add aconite into the formula. Now, we know aconite is not incredibly healthy for you, but if you add it with the other components, it gets rid of the toxicity, and now it is safe to ingest. This is you know, historical prescribing, very important. Current prescribing, very challenging in the research paradigm. So we, what I like about what my team does is we navigate that line where we're holding with the traditional use. We've spent a lot of time and resources characterizing all of the different parts of the herb, and there are still things we don't know. And we own that we don't know them. And that is, uh, and that comes down to, did the herb grow in the same place? No. So now we have a variability by environment, by soil, by temperature, 
by harvest method, again, a lot of complications. So we try to control as much as we can, and, and we always are upfront and state exactly what we have, and then we give that for the trial. So far, we've been having success moving forward with explaining, or at least getting um, funding to be able to do this trial as long as you prove it's safe. So as a student, the big way to, and, and as a practitioner that's not in research yourself, the way to boost this evidence for those of us who are in research trying to justify the use of our botanicals to write your case studies. And that is, and they're not very challenging to write in the sense of complexity, but they do take time. And I appreciate that everybody's limited on time again. But to help each other out, there aren't that many of us, and we definitely want to have each other's backs. But if you write a research article that is a case study, you have a particular person, you gave them a particular combination, and then you see the result. And if you write that out with the consent of the, the patient, absolutely, that's the most important part. It helps build the evidence so that when I look for evidence to justify why I'm doing what I'm doing, I have a lot of evidence behind that in the case study perspective. At least it gives us safety data, which is the biggest thing for concern for clinical trials in general. So I would say, you know, that is that is the progression forward from a clinician standpoint is more case studies and more case series, which is a lot of different people that had the same treatment. And I get that we do holistic medicine and nobody has the exact same treatment. But if they have similar treatments across the group, you can group them together and make an argument. That then leads evidence for uh, moving forward towards a cl clinical trial. What's nice is there's also more movement in the clinical trial community to do multimodal interventions or multi-combination interventions, so multiple things at once, because we're seeing that things in isolation aren't necessarily working. And this is very particular in nutrition trials. So nutrition, you don't give them one supplement always. Or again, there's controversy as to the different forms of vitamin E, like you referred to. Which one works? You can't generalize across because they're just not the same. Uh, their chemistry is too different. So again, nutrition trials are just as complicated. But you control what you can't, or you can, and then there's just some things you can't control. And you're upfront and honest about it, and you look at all the different variables that you can control, and then you move the, the, the trial forward. Uh, nutrition trials are no easy, easy feat. They are very expensive. They take a lot of time and. Uh, but ultimately, for preventative medicine information, they are a large foundation because that is one thing that a person is exposed to every day that they have control over, which is a very interesting idea. And so personally, I do very much like botanical medicine. I'm also branching over to some uh, uh, nutrition trials to try to move this multimodal thing forward because I think people trained in, in nutrition, nutritionists, naturopathic doctors, functional medicine doctors are pivotal in developing these studies so that they remain relevant to what's actually happening in the real world and the expectations that people can actually do. Some of these, these diets are not sustainable. Nobody can, nobody can follow them, right? Even naturopathic <laughs> students can't follow them, and that's serious. So, um, and so we, we have to kind of make sure that what we're doing is also relevant to the world. So in having clinicians involved is very important, but also that it's feasible, and that's a huge problem with a lot of these trials. I'm curious, too, when you're speaking about nutrition research, because I feel like there's conflicting data out there. Like, you can find an evidence, you can find evidence for multiple ways of eating. Yes. I'm so curious, just with, like, you have so much knowledge of research. Do you feel like there's, like, a most evidence-based diet? There's the most, so I will speak that I have a bias that I'm in Alzheimer's research, right? So okay. I cannot read diets for every condition. I wish I could. <laughs> that would be a whole nother lifetime, and I do not have one of those inflammation and neurodegenerative diseases, I would argue that the Mediterranean diet has the most studies on it. Right. And these are large volume studies, meaning there's a lot of people for a long time. 
And so based on, and I, you know, you hear that word a lot, Mediterranean diet across the board. I was hoping I would come up something really exciting, but I don't. <laughs> so because it is the one that is the most studied, because it has historical data from longstanding information from the Mediterranean environment, and moving forward, people being put on this intervention diet for a few different reasons. Uh, it, and then the one behind it would be the DASH diet, right? So the one for hypertension. And again, these big chronic diseases have the most evidence behind these diets because they have the most people that can participate in them, and they're being well-funded by institutes looking at these conditions. So you know, there's an entire institute on cardiovascular disease, so they're going to want to look at hypertension and heart risk. Again, the same thing with uh, neurodegenerative diseases. But the Mediterranean diet's been looked at across diseases, mm-hmm. not disease-specific, and so that's why I would argue it's a little, maybe a little more evidence-based. But again, you can find conflicting data. Right. So if you look for hard enough for it, you can find evidence for everything, which is not necessarily a benefit. This is why having training and at least having some sort of experience in how to read research critically so that you can see what is real and what is um, has either bias in it or false data or exacerbation of, of the data, then I would say that's an important skill set to have. And it's it's not necessarily an easy one to acquire, but I think it's important for anybody working where you're trying to argue that you use evidence behind what you do. Yeah, I have to agree. Just in my personal experience, I've been working on this systematic review, looking at inflammation and systemic inflammation and diet. And we looked at 56 papers and there was evidence for and against something like almost 20 different diets uh, with no consistent positive or negative, including the Mediterranean diet, which was the most well-researched. So there are definitely these trends of these diets that are getting the funding. Um, There's nutrition research is very hard. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think a lot of that uh, mixed research is probably because of the design of the studies as well. And so that's why these systematic reviews are a really good place to go for reading research to try to get a consensus answer regarding something rather than individual papers all the time. Now, case study papers are really helpful for individual cases, and if it applies to your patient, that makes a lot of sense. But if you're looking for a global answer as to, like, does vitamin D do, fill in the blank, and currently probably does, yes and no, but... uh, If it does, you would want to look at a systematic review because that is the most critical review of the information, and they bring all the papers together that then you can read the the trends. And unfortunately, due to design, they probably split right down the middle as to yes and no, but some of them actually do give you good information. So for any, like, doctors who might be in practice who are like, wow, I've been practicing, I'd really love to write up a case study and feeling like maybe they're behind and maybe they haven't done research before, where would you recommend beginning? So uh, that's a very good question. Where do you start? Ultimately, the nice thing about, so this is this is applicable to students. They're, we're doing more integration of how to read research articles in naturopathic education, at least from what I'm aware of. Yeah. Um, and I've I, when I lecture, I, I definitely discuss paper writing and, and evidence appraisal in my lectures and that's more so just to make sure that people have awareness when I'm discussing what I'm talking about that they know um, how to critically uh, appraise what I say. So if you're a practicing physician and you don't have any evidence uh, or any research background there are courses that are available to start you learning or what I would argue is journal clubs and journal clubs with peers would be a safe and comfortable way to start, where if you're feeling intimidated, because research is intimidating, about reading it, 
meeting with other peers that may have more experience in research to start you off would be helpful, but then I would think additional courses, and again, I know there's some online and they're continuing to grow, uh, about how to research, how to read research would be important because if you're only relying on your peers, just make sure that they also have a good evidence-based training appraisal background. Otherwise, you may or may not have difficulty with reading the papers, even as a group. Hopefully, going forward, I'll be able to do more of uh, these type of things in Portland and may or may not help develop ways to teach people how to read research, because I think that's very important. I'm just a little bit... Uh, time resource limited at the current time, but that doesn't mean that it's not on my radar. It's been on there for a long time. And so hopefully I can kind of help build this for naturopathic doctors, at least to be able to start reading natural medicine type journals and then move forward with that. But there are online courses. I'm guessing you can also get CE for them as long as you get them approved. So that's a motivator for you. And then having some time to read the articles with others, I think is helpful, especially when you're super confused or it's complicated information. And I imagine really effectively being able to read a case study would be the best first step in being able to write your own. Oh, absolutely. Because like, once you have a solid understanding of how it works, you can go for it and then get feedback. Absolutely. Professionals. Yeah. Absolutely. So the best way to start it is to, to read them. And you understand the format, you understand what's in there, what's not in there, how to protect your patient's identity, what information is relevant, what's not relevant, and then you get a you get some exposure to them, and then you're like, oh yeah, I have this really interesting case of this per, of this patient that had this condition, and I did this this intervention for them, and they had this you know really interesting outcome, and then uh, kind of writing it up, and then of course involving peers and or um, if you're close to one of the naturopathic universities, their uh, review process would be really helpful to make sure that everything is done according to plan. So switching gears a little bit, I, clearly you're able to really talk about research at this lofty level because you're a full-time researcher. I'm wondering, kind of looking at your background, you've been doing this for a long time. Do you feel like there's a degree or a moment at which you became a competent researcher, or is that still in process? I think it's still in process. I think the world of research is very fluid in some aspects, especially when we're on these more sidelined type areas of research. I came in with a background in bench science. So I can't, you know, that is, and that is very complicated in itself. The MISMER program was really helpful in introducing to me the complexities of integrative medicine. And that I wasn't very aware of uh, going forward. Now I do a lot of, I have to do, I'm doing a lot of learning into how to deal with regulatory agencies, which is always a learning process. Uh, and or, you know, this is regulatory agencies for funding and regulatory agencies for clinical trials, such as the FDA. There are standard ways to do things going forward, and I feel a lot better about doing them as I move forward than I did when I started my fellowship in 2016. I would argue that I feel a lot more competent now than I did before. I also did another clinical research master's in there, which had some duplication of information from the, the integrative medicine master's with how is a study designed, how do you recruit people, how do you protect people's safety, a lot of that aspect. Uh, I had a lot more grant writing exposure with my, my second uh, clinical research degree. I had more biostatistics, which is essential, unfortunately, in research. And then uh, I had some more, I had some ability to do some elective courses in how to manage an ad academic group and how to lead groups and how to work with uh, diverse populations. So I think I've, I'm still learning. I'm still taking courses. I'm applying for another grant that's called a career development grant, which is the next step. And that, again, has training built into it because researchers are constantly training, just like physicians are constantly getting CE and training and learning new things. 
But I would say now being a fellow and having been embedded into an academic institution, I feel like I've gained a lot more uh, momentum as a researcher than I did uh, beforehand when I was doing it kind of as an adjunct to my clinical practice. So now that you're embedded at OHSU and you've been at NUNM, I'm really curious about how the academic environment differs how between differ? the two institutions <laughs> uh, and how they're the same. They're, they, I mean, the, they're, the framework of academic institutions are very similar. So, you know, you bring in grant money, you, you know, that grant money funds your, your studies, it funds your overhead, you do your trials. It's the same thing with both. NUNM has is, is got diverse researchers in the sense that we have acupuncturists and nutritionists and naturopathic doctors, and we have a couple of medical doctors here. But it's a little bit different in an integrative environment like OHSU, which has a large, lot larger number of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the integrative environment there has basic scientists, clinicians, specialists in clinical different types of clinical practice, entire departments built for just administering your grants or just getting regulatory approval, or they have an entire biostatistics core. The academic institution varies in the sense that, that's, that they just have a lot of resources available to researchers to utilize, some free, some for a fee. And uh, that has been really beneficial for learning because they, they like to teach. But also, uh, there are, you, know, you only can do so many things as an individual. And I know I will never be a biostatistician. It just doesn't flow with being a clinician. I can't do it. And so having an entire division to help me do that is really helpful. And NUNM has a, has a biostatistician in our, our research institute. And he is very taxed because he is the one biostatistician. So to have a, a, a resource of a few different people does help. But again, NUNM is moving, is you know, trying is performing rigorous research as well and getting independent NIH funding. And so I think that you know they just focus on integrative care. And up there, I'm I'm more of an outlier in studying things that are not conventional. So there's you know pharmaceutical trials going on and and uh, uh, the nice uh, collaborative environment means that I can discuss with them the perspective coming from a naturopathic doctor and a naturopathic doctor with evidence-based history to kind of come to the table equally and move the trials forward or look at them from a different perspective. And I think that applies to clinical practice too. It's integrative models are very important, but um, it's, it's thing coming for sure. Yeah. So what's next after your fellowship? What's next? So my plan is I'm, a, I'm currently actively, I have a two grants pending, so the patiently wait on my hands and hope that I get funded phase, uh, which is unfortunately part of academic medicine as well. And then I have another grant going in in a week, so I'm actively writing, uh, trying to do that. And then uh, my clinical trials, I should have a clinical trial up and running, hopefully here pretty soon. We're awaiting a a result from the FDA again for my trial. And then uh, hopefully going forward in the future, I would like to bring clinical practice back in part-time. And that is because I want to maintain clinical relevance of my research. Clinical relevance fluctuates. What people are looking for, what people are willing to do, what... uh, are people concerned with is very important for justifying why we're going to do research. If you're researching something that people aren't never going to use or doesn't apply to a person, it doesn't seem like it's a very worthwhile cause in my mind. I want to be able to see people once a week to maintain my uh, clinical skill set, to maintain that my research is actually relevant to the people that it's intended to be used by, and then devote um, 75% of my time, plus or minus a little bit, to uh, maintaining my research 
trajectory and starting my own research lab where I have some uh, different researchers. And I would love to have, you know, complementary medicine researchers in my lab in addition to conventionally trained ones. And that's because I'm on this translational line of trying to bridge the gap between the two worlds and move uh, natural products and naturopathic research forward. And I think having naturopathic the trained people and, the, and Chinese medicine trained people as well on these these uh, teams is really important to, again, maintain clinical relevance, to help you understand how research works and to help you engage with people. And I hope that the hope is to be able to do research to, to help a lot of different people that I don't see in front of my face. That is what kind of drew me to research is I can provide the evidence for the people on the front lines doing the clinical care so that they feel confident in what they're prescribing. But I also, and I can also get that to non-naturopathic providers that are um, seeing patients with the same conditions. And then, and hopefully treat a lot of people that way, and then treat the people that come to see me so that I can help the individual as well. So hopefully that's the, that's the dream. Uh, I know it's possible. It just takes a lot of steps. And where exactly it will be is, is always up for debate as to where the position would become available, but hopefully it stays in Portland, but we will see. I'm so curious if there's anything going on right now in naturopathic medicine that's like trending or exciting that you would love to see studied next. That's a really hard question. Um, And I'm a little bit, I I will, this is why I say I want to bring clinical practice back in because I'm a little bit disengaged from it at this time, but I know that there's a lot of funding in pain and I know that naturopathic medicine has a lot of skills to help with non-pharmaceutical management of pain. And I think that it would be a really fascinating avenue. And, you know, I have a history of working in regenerative medicine, and that is, again, a very controversial field with, I know my naturopathic peers are doing it, um, I also think it's very important that we start publishing articles about multimodal holistic management of these treatments of regenerative medicine because there's a lot of mixed evidence about regenerative medicines, um, plus and minuses. And again, I think that comes down to if you're giving someone an injection of their own materials and their health is not ideal, then they're not going to recover nearly as well as if their health was, you know, at least, I can't say optimal because we're always constantly trying to improve, but at least much better. And I think that if we, if we have studies out there for people doing these regenerative treatments and we discuss what things they were on in advance to optimize their outcome, or maybe we need to start doing more of that about optimizing their health before we even do these interventions, uh, which I think is, is very relevant, then I think that would be an area of research where naturopathic physicians are doing more of that injection type therapy. And we do that with nutraceuticals too. So this is IV nutrient therapy. Again, we have a very powerful modality, but very minimal research on it. Um, And it's hard to do that research and it's hard to rate it. Um, And so I I think that these modalities are really, diet is very hard, but diet, there's a lot of people trying to do diet studies at this point. I would argue that we are doing a lot more regenerative medicine and sports medicine type things as a field. In general, I've been seeing it come a little bit more relevant. And then uh, pain management, I think we could contribute to the current conversation of trying to get basically opioid epidemic issue that we can discuss where it's moving forward. And I know there's probably much more other things that come to your mind that are relevant for research for what is currently on the pulse of naturopathic medicine. And I would be completely happy to have physicians reach out to me and say, this is really important and we need to research this. Now, how do we do it? Mm -hmm. Because I would be happy to, to kind of help people facilitate moving forward with these type of things. That'd be such a great resource. Yeah. I I mean, I hope. I hope that I can serve as a resource to people. One, I've done all this training for a reason. um, And I also want to make sure that we we as a field continue to move forward in the right direction. And having a skill set like I have is really, I think, useful. 
but uh, I also need to hear back from the clinicians and make sure that I'm also maintaining my relevance. So it's a, it's a two-way street. And uh, I know that a lot of us researchers get put in a different group as to, you know, we get called green allopaths sometimes. I've definitely been called that a few times. And I, I just want to say that I'm, I'm trying to maintain all clinical relevance is what I do. So I'm maintaining, I'm looking at it in a very rigorous way, but I'm trying to make sure that I use my clinical and naturopathic eyes when I develop these and less so and still maintain scientific rigor without moving away from from our roots and it's a very delicate balance so having clinicians in research is helpful in the sense that we maintain it that way and it's that it doesn't go the other direction still yeah absolutely other questions so this is something that I think about a lot as someone who has struggled with burnout off and on <laughs> uh, associated with research and academics in general and all that good stuff I'm kind of wondering how you balance work and life, if you do. <laughs> if I do. I like the caveat on the back of that statement. I know what it's like. So. Yeah. Re- you know, research is quite a demanding field. And residency is also a demanding field. And clinical practice is also a demanding field. And I have some experience in all of those different avenues. Balancing your life is, a, is, a, is an elegant uh, dance that you do every single day. It's not something that you can set out a plan to do and have it fulfill. Because I have seen, I've tried. I'm a, I have to be organized in what I do. I have to plan forward by months or even years in advance for these trials. And so, you know, I, I would liken myself to a pretty big planner. That being said, um, plans are fluctuant. And being able to admit when it's too much is a very delicate thing that we all kind of need to work on as a field in general, uh, but also as a human. So being, you know, being cognizant of your own abilities as well as cognizant of how you feel in your body when you are feeling burnt out is a very important thing that we a lot, a lot of times we neglect. And, that, you know, as a culture in the United States, we are, we are very good at this. It's the more productive I get, the better I feel. The balance between uh, what I do and self-care is kind of challenging. Now, lately I've been doing a lot more trying to implement this into my life now that my master's is finished and the fellowship is transitioning. And I've built my future funding cycle to try to allow for a little bit more flexibility in personal life and professional life balance. That is not something that everybody can do, for sure. But, you know, preventing burnout is really... One thing is to make sure that what you're doing is something that you really like. And if you don't like it, you probably should shift it. And and that is a really, you know, we all say that. And I know that I'm getting a lot of eyeball rolling from that statement because there are things we all do in our life that we don't like, right? And we just have to kind of go through the motions of doing them. Laundry is mine. I hate it, but I have to do it. So ultimately, the work-life balance for me comes down to do I like what I'm doing? If I don't, can I change it? If I can't change it, can I change my perspective on how I feel about it? If I can't do that, then I really need to kind of do a self-check and say, what is it that I don't like about what's going on? And then accepting that I don't like it helps with not feeling burnt out by it rather than feeling incredibly unmotivated to do it and feeling kind of upset about the circumstance. You know, that is in all things in life, I feel like. The next thing is for this whole burnout situation is just recognizing that right now you might have done enough and consistently doing more and more on top of it doesn't necessarily make you more productive or happier about what you're doing. And if you keep adding to the list on the hope of being happier about it, you in essence are making the burnout worse. 
And I am an av I am a, I, I do this all the time. If I learn more, if I continue to learn more, which I love learning, but there is a timeline where I had to listen to my body where I got incredibly fatigued. And no matter what I did, I just felt incredibly fatigued that I had known I had hit the limit. Like I can't do any more in a day. And there's only so many hours in the day. So also the other thing is just, and I know this is very fundamental, but sleep balance is the most is essential. One, for memory repair. Two, for just generalized sense of well-being and energy levels. And I think that if we don't keep, you know, if we don't hold true to practice what you preach, I feel like it's really hard to maintain that that distance from burnout. And, you know, I, I didn't, unfortunately, I will admit that I didn't give myself any breaks for the last longest forever. And so inevitably burnout isn't is going to happen. Um, and it, it, it did. I did get to the point where I was very tired and very burnt, burnt out and very unmotivated and taking time away and engaging in physical act. For me, physical activity is the big thing that helps me stress manage and also helps me feel a lot better for other people. That's not the case. And one of the other things we need to think about is reorienting our perspective on what self-care means. And self-care has got this big faux pas about us. It. Like it's pedicures and massages and facials and mimosas with friends. No, no. <laughs> self-care is whatever makes you very happy. And, and for some people, that's sitting in the woods. For other people, that's reading a book. For other people, that's going on a drive. But to really check in and make sure that you know what really makes you happy and things that after you feel you do it, you feel better and you don't feel any guilt about taking time to do that. Um, is really, really great. I did see a quote recently this week that was said, you know, you have 24 hours in your day. And if you give yourself one hour a day for self-care, that's only one 25th of the day, 24th of the day. So you have 24 hours in the day. Obviously, I think that I'm creating more hours in the day. So <laughs> that's what I really research is how to make time stop. No, so if you, if that's only one 24th. It's a tiny number. If you look at the actual math, it's not that big. But we, we struggle to find that 124th. If you do 30 minutes, that's 148th of your day. That's not, you know, we all hate fractions, but that is not that big. <laughs> so if you can find a way to squeeze that in, and if it's walking to a place instead of driving to a place, if it's, a lot of people is cooking a really good meal. And it doesn't even have to be a social meal. It's just a food that makes you feel good. And finding that, whatever it is, is, is big. And just reorienting your perspective on self-care, not being whatever you see in the media but actually seeing you know what is it that makes me as myself feel good is going to be the big way to stave off burnout and then research that's what I've had to do because there's there's the expectation of work hours is really long clinical trials last a long time uh, seeing results takes forever if you want to see results quickly clinical trials is not the place to be and so then you're inevitably going to feel burnt out or unmotivated so maintaining your perspective is really important the long hour days with what I do, they're long days. They're 16-hour days sometimes when I'm in a visit with a participant because I'm looking for long-term safety issues, and I can't just send them home. So those are long days, so making sure that I balance with other days that have good self-care built into them is really important. For me, it's planning. For some people, it's spontaneity, but whatever it works for you is, is the big thing to kind of discover. And it's a balance, and you never exactly get it right, and you keep have to be fluctuant, but you will get there eventually. Yeah, I like to think of it as a practice. Yep. It's like something I'll probably be practicing for the rest of my life because it also changes over time. Yep. But I totally agree with what you're saying because sometimes I feel like people look at self-care as like this this other thing I have to like fit in. Like, yep. oh God, I have to find another hour and get a massage. But yep. really, I think it's just about slowing down yep. and like honoring your own limits and like your own needs and like putting yourself as a priority. 
Yeah, it's not a task. Right. If you look at it as a task, you will lead to burnout faster because mm-hmm. tasks are bur- burn you out. If you look at everything as a task, as a constant need to get better and do more things. And just and I, slowing down is you know is a really important thing, and what that looks like for everybody is very different. Because mine is exercise. That's not slowing down, right? right. That's moving my body more. Uh, but but uh, uh, there was a time in school where I didn't exercise. I just didn't have the bandwidth during the day. And I will completely admit that I was not you know practice what you preach. And I realized that. And then. I was struggling to encourage others to do it if I couldn't do it myself. And so finding a way to fit it in my day was, was at the beginning, a challenge. I was like, oh, man, now i got to go for a run, and I don't have enough hours in the day to do it. But reorienting and realizing, word is not waste, but delegating my time elsewhere that I thought was more important than me was a thing that I really had to check in with. TV is not more important than me. I, I don't need to know what's happening on the latest episode of Fill in the Blank. Right? Yes. So I'm going to go do whatever it might be. Um, and and, and it, it's helped. If Some people, it's social things too. Like uh, I joined a soccer team. That helped me a lot. It was exercise and social things at the same time. Other people, if you're a significant introvert, that probably sounds terrifying to you. And you really don't want to do that. So if reading a book by yourself is it, then that's the thing. But it is. It's a practice. Every day. Every day is a practice. Every day is a new day. If you didn't do it the day before, beating yourself up for not fitting your self-care in is like the exact opposite of what you actually should be doing. And being forgiving, like very self-compassionate is the biggest key to not being burnt out. I'm not perfect. I'm working at this. I'm going to keep trying. Yesterday was a rough day. I didn't quite get what I wanted to do, but today is a new one. Let's try better. Mm -hmm. And that really staves off the burnout, I think, in all perspectives, clinical practice, research, studenting, uh, uh, relationships, all those sorts of things. Totally. agree 100%. Okay, so we like to end with three rapid-fire questions. And the first one is, what's something you've read? It could be a book or just anything, you, you know, any kind of media you've consumed that has impacted your career the most? Career. So I, I'm going to not, I'm going to dissociate career with, with person because I feel like my person is is also important as well so last year I read I took a year to try to like focus on myself because I was having um some exciting things happen uh, professionally and learning and graduating and things like that and I read the year of yes and the year of yes is a book where she commits to saying yes to everything that makes her scared and that book was helpful for me professionally and personally so I don't really mind, I'm not scared to give lectures, but I am scared to give lectures on things that I am not very good at or know a lot about. And I did a year of saying yes to everything, and I'm still dealing with the aftermath of all of these yeses. So I've had talks come about that I've had to give, which were great. They were major growing experiences. They resulted in publications. They resulted in collaborations. They resulted in learning a lot of things that were outside of my normal everyday life. So saying yes to that was scary, but it also was great for growing. Uh, and that's also been personal you know, conquests. Like, do you want to climb this mountain tonight? yes it scares me so i'm gonna do it within safety limits of course i don't encourage everybody to go climb mountains that's not safe but uh yeah the year of yes while it's written by somebody very much in the media by the lady who wrote gray's anatomy yes Uh shonda rhimes wrote this book but she also talks about the year of yes for her in this perspective of relationships 
uh, friendships and per intimate relationships in the perspective of uh, getting over social fears, in the perspective of growing and taking you know, career risks. And I think that for me it was really helpful because I, I decided like, you know, I need to start saying yes to these things that I've chronically said no to for fear of, uh, of failing. But in actuality, you know, there, failure is a matter of perspective. It really is a growth process. And I think that uh, that helped with career. Like, oh, am I going to send in this scary grant that is unlikely to be funded, but I'm going to try anyway? Yes, I am. Right? That sort of thing. Am I going to give a lecture on this thing that I don't understand? Uh, yes. And I'm going to research as much as I can about it and learn about it. So I think it, that one was, yeah, that for me was the one big one recently that was uh, really helpful. I know that historically there are also a lot of them that probably came down to like herbal medicine use um, stories um, that I just, they're not coming to mind. But that one came to mind as to relatively recent big changes in the career field and personal field. Yeah. Do you have a favorite app? Will you admit, I will admit that I'm not a big app user. So yes. that's, that's true. Well, that's uh, good news. You can do clinical research and you don't have to be savvy with I'll just build an app. Yeah. <laughs> just build an app for research reading. That would be really helpful. There's a couple of herbal medicine apps that are really helpful. Um, the name is not coming to me. I used to really, I forget the title of it, but was there was an app where people could put treatments and discuss the treatments and the pros and cons of the treatments, and it included herbal treatments, pharmaceutical treatments, and all sorts of other things and their personal experience with it. And unfortunately, it lost funding, but I really hope it comes back. But that was really helpful in clinical practice where you would feel stuck. Yeah. And you're like, what are other people using? And so, and you have people in your clinic, that's helpful, but what are people outside doing? And you hear me scream, I see it on the screen. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a, like a really What was cool... it called? Well, you said it lost funding, though. Right? It did, but it okay. hadn't, yeah. Something like that. That would be my favorite app. If it comes back, <laughs> students, invent this. Please. In your copious free time. I know there are tech savvy students on there and clinicians out there that can do these things for me. That's a great one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, just for, for, that would be a form of evidence use for clinical use based on case study type situations where clinicians can go on there and put in what they used and an outcome result from it. Because you know? there's a lot of diseases that we, you know, natural medicines aren't help. They often help, but sometimes it's very complicated and you can't quite get a treatment to, to come about. So thinking outside the box combination treatments, it's really helpful. Yeah. I miss this app. <laughs> So the naturopathic medicine you said earlier, like you have so many modalities to choose from. Yep. What is your favorite modality? Biased because of botanical medicine. And that is not because of my research. That was before. Right. So I, I pursued my PhD in the effort to want to do botanical medicine. And I think it's because it bridges the globe. Uh, we have botanical medicine from every country. Every, there's different forms of medicine that use it. Um, they have their own usage of it. And it goes back to um, when I was in undergrad, I applied to do a fellowship to travel the world and study botanical treatment and tea use across the world. It was not funded, but it was a very ideal, idealistic idea. And I think that uh, it's just been a longstanding thing. Botanical medicine has always been my interest. I think it's followed a little bit don't know what's next behind it. I did a lot of IV therapy and injection therapy, so I think that's a very powerful modality, um, and it's not for everybody for sure. But yeah, those are the top two. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to meet with us, and I just want to acknowledge you. I think it's so inspiring what you have done within naturopathic medicine to take this path 
to, to go into a big research institution to commit yourself to doing this research on a large scale and the benefit that it'll have within the profession I think is just really extraordinary. So thank you so much for doing what you do. Yeah, thank you. It's been, it's been fun. And I highly encourage anybody interested in doing research in any capacity to reach out. And I'm happy to talk to you about it. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Practice Sessions. If you enjoyed the interview, please make sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review. For show notes and more information, visit our website at www.thepracticesessionspodcast.com.